The interviews in this podcast, all of which are ultimately uplifting stories of human transformation, may contain general discussions of depression, trauma, violence, abuse, or cultural and racial bias. On this episode of Shift Shift Bloom, what was happening was that the oxygen was being cut off from her brain. And in one last effort, she she drove herself to the hospital and she never made it inside though. She she lost consciousness and she fell into a coma. Today, part two of my interview with Juliana Barton, a foster care alumna from Ohio who tells us how even in adulthood, she continues to struggle against systems in which the deck always seems to be stacked against her. I'm Kristen Sorelli, and you're listening to Shift Shift Bloom, a podcast about how people change. Today I'm back with the second part of my interview with Juliana Barton, a foster care alumna who grew up experiencing firsthand the flaws in the very broken system of child protective services. She finally entered foster care at the age of 17, but was emancipated shortly after her 18th birthday. Out on her own for the first time and with almost no support, Juliana began to navigate the unknown. It wasn't easy. When a series of medical misdiagnoses affecting her sister brought her to Los Angeles, Juliana once again confronted glaring institutional inadequacies, this time in California's public health system. It turns out the mass growing in Juliana's sister's throat was thyroid cancer, which required a total thyroidectomy, the removal of the thyroid gland. Not particularly unusual, but what was unusual was this. Juliana's sister relied on Medi-Cal, California's Medicaid program, meaning she was not at the top of anyone's list. Instead, she was in a holding pattern awaiting a radioactive iodine treatment that required her to be off her thyroid medication, temporarily. But one delay became many delays, and no one seemed to notice that she was never put back on her thyroid hormone replacement medication. This went on dangerously long, by the way, the thyroid is a big deal, and if you don't have one and you don't take your medication, you can die within a few weeks. Juliana's sister was getting worse and worse, but they didn't know why. I had no idea at the time what happens to you when you don't have your thyroid, you know, the medication, and... I was working really hard to support the both of us, and I, I don't think that I was paying attention as well as what I could have. And of course, again, I still had, you know, my not so great behaviors. And so I, I kind of missed the signs. But she was experiencing like syncopal episodes. What are those? A syncopal episode is is where I guess you're you're basically losing consciousness. You're passing out. You're fainting. And 
I don't know if she would have even told me this part. I didn't learn until after, but she she was experiencing hallucinations and whatnot. And so she, I had no idea any of this was going on. And I think she was probably really confused by it as well because she didn't tell me. But what she did do was go to the ER 23 times during this time period to to say, hey, I think there's something wrong with me. You know, I think there's something going on. And instead what ended up happening is that she was she was seen as a I guess seen as an individual with drug seeking behaviors, mm-hmm. seen as an individual with mental health problems. She was told literally as I was looking through the papers um, because she kept them, it said like stress induced syncope, meaning mm-hmm. you know her episodes of of losing consciousness were related to stress apparently, which ended up truly not being the case. What was happening was that the oxygen was being cut off from her brain. And in one last effort, she she drove herself to the hospital. Despite all this stuff happening, you know, she still knows something is not right. She drove herself to the hospital and she never made it inside though. She she lost consciousness, like, uh, I, I don't know how many yards away from the hospital, uh, but she lost consciousness and she fell into a coma. And I had no idea any of that was going on. She was in a coma for a week before they finally contacted me. They had no idea who she was because she didn't have any identification on her. And when they finally contacted me, I was just... I can't even describe. It was unbelievable. How did they get to you? How did they figure out who she was and find you? It's actually a pretty crazy story. <laughs> um, so how they ended up fi- identifying her is, so obviously she, I said she had driven herself there on her mm-hmm. car keys. She had a Kroger, or I'm not sure what they call it out there, but it's the equivalent of Kroger. Um, she had like that reward card on there and they ended up contacting them and learned who she was through that. Isn't that wild? Wow. (laughs) Which is, I I think that's fantastic that they were able to figure that out. A grocery store. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God they gave the information because you never know when somebody's going to put up a wall. Absolutely. To, to sharing information. So they finally get to you. Yes. So they finally get to me and I, I really didn't even understand what was going on at the time because it was just so shocking to me. And so they, they start to ask me, like, oh, what is she like in, in everyday life? Like, what's her baseline? And and I was like, you know, she she's just like you or I. Like, she's self-sufficient, you know, whatever. So what had happened was she was nonverbal and non-ambulatory like they thought she was a homeless person and that literally was her baseline and they were going to discharge her because they did not know so if I I am so grateful that I did receive that call because I'm, I'm not sure what really would have happened but I ended up flying out there and staying with her and I thought honestly at first I, I guess I, I didn't even want to believe it I thought maybe she, I, I, and this is a crazy thought to have, but I thought maybe she was not talking to anybody because she was shy. She was a really shy and quiet person. 
And I, I, I thought that if she heard my voice, that she would be, she would be okay. And so I got there and it was, it was just a real shock to me. She, she was just not responsive, um, kind of in, in this vegetative state. And it was, it was really challenging to see her like that and to not know what was going to happen. And though she was, she was out of the ICU by that time, like there were still periods of time in which she would, her, episodes where she was not stable and just watching that happen, um, never knowing like if I would walk away, I, I was terrified that she was going to die especially because this this coma that she had went into has a, a very high mortality rate very rare so it was it was very scary to me and and I it's a little dramatic to say now but I, I literally thought that I was dying too because I didn't think I could manage this I I have never in my life wished more than at that moment that I had parents to tell me you know, what to do in this situation. Like, I had no idea what to do. And so I I just tried to be there and, and try to help in whatever way I could. And throughout the course of several weeks, you know, she she would have little improvements where she would open her eyes. Um, but it was at that point that I realized she wasn't the same person. Um, I, I later learned that she had brain damage from the lack of oxygen that has permanently impacted her. And she she couldn't speak at first. Um, it was just a bunch of gibberish. And, and it was, she would also try to write, but it, it was nothing that anybody could make sense of. And I, it was really hard to watch how frustrating that was for her. I think that she thought she was making sense. And I think it was just a really confusing situation for her. And there were point there were points at which they had to restrain her. I mean it's funny to look back at now. Um but it wasn't funny at the time. There were certain points in what in which she started to be able to walk again that she would just take off down the hall and like her gown would come open and, and she was naked. <laughs> I mean, it's funny now, uh, but, but at the time it was, it was a lot to, to handle. Yeah. I guess just like this new version of, of who my sister was. And I, I think for a long time I was in denial and it was really hard for me to accept like, this is my sister now. But throughout all that, after a few weeks of being in the hospital, the the physicians told me that, unfortunately, it, it looked like she was not going to improve, like cognitively. And so they made plans to discharge her to an Alzheimer's home, which I had no idea even existed. And and at that moment, I I feel like I had a really big decision to make. And one of the social workers who 
was on her case had said to me too, so I can't take complete credit for just sitting here and doing this, but one of the social workers prompted me into the decision that I did end up making by saying to me, you know, if the state of California takes custody of her, it, it will be really hard, if not impossible, for you to ever be able to, to get your sister. So knowing that, like hearing that, I, I had this really big decision to make. And I, I guess you could say advocated, although I was doing that the entire time I was in the hospital. I advocated for them to discharge her to my care. And I packed up her entire apartment and I drove and brought her back to Ohio with me. And then, you know, I took over her care. And it was really then that as I was stumbling, trying to learn how to do this while also managing like these bad behaviors that I um, was having, I, I, I real, you know, I, I really had this realization that I, I couldn't they couldn't coexist. I, I couldn't give her mm. the best care, the care that I knew that she deserved, if I was this version of myself. And so that was really the the big event that changed my life, changed the course of my life. Two things. I mean, so many things stand out in what you just said, but two things really hit me right now. One, your realization that two things were mutually exclusive and could not coexist and that you must make the choice. You make the choice. You exercise your power to choose which one stays and which one goes. And also, and I cannot believe this didn't hit me before because you told me a much, much shorter version of this story <laughs> with much fewer details, but... It's astounding to me that you have done for your sister what no one was able to do for you, which is to take her in, to provide for her, to give her care. Does that feel to you like you're rewriting history, like an opportunity to rewrite history on behalf of the two of you? Absolutely. I, I think that when I say I envisioned a better life for myself, Part of that better life included wanting to see my sister and my mom and, and my other family members, even my dad, have a better life too. Like it, there was a lot of pain just seeing how how each of us were hurting in our own separate ways. And I think I've always had this, um, I don't know if you want to call it personality, of taking care of others so sitting there and, and taking that on, I, I do think, um, I'm not sure what would have happened if, if this didn't happen with my sister. And I'm not saying that I by any mean have wanted it to happen, but I, I don't know if we would have even had this opportunity to have a second chance at, at repairing this relationship and um, I guess defining what our lives mean. Do you pause ever to give yourself credit for all that you take on? I think I, I there of course have been moments when I have sat there and, and reflected on everything that has happened. But I, I think there's also 
a part of me that looks at it from from the perspective of for a large portion of my life I I felt like I was told who I would be or who I had to be you know so I was struggling with that and then also with who I wanted to be but then there's this third part too which is what my responsibilities actually dictate who I become mm. this though I think it happens to work out because I have a passion for caring for others and being a caregiver for my sister has just been another one of those experiences that I I feel has given me an insight into valuable information for for what it means to care for others for to advocate for others in in vulnerable populations you know people who don't have a voice for themselves yeah you list yourself on LinkedIn and in other places as an aspiring physician. And so, like, what does that mean? Um, well, one, <laughs> I'm not one. <laughs> That's what that means. <laughs> I can't call myself one. Um, aspiring because, yes, I mean, that's ultimately my goal, my career goal, my professional goal, is is to become a physician. So I, though it has taken me longer than most, I've had this very non-traditional, very non-linear path to to getting here. That is ultimately where I see myself. And I, I think this journey that I've been on and the length of time that it has taken me to get here, I, I think that some people might view it as um, maybe negative, but at the same time, the fact that all these things have happened, all these challenges, all these barriers, and I, I still want to do it, <laughs> and I'm not letting that stop me. I think that's a true testament to how passionate I am about becoming a physician. Yeah. Tell me why it's medicine and not something like social work or some other form of giving care. What What is it to you? that draws you specifically to the to the medical field? There are a couple things. I would say, you know, when I had talked about learning the science behind how, what I was experiencing, what I was feeling, learning the science behind that was very interesting to me. I think another aspect is the autonomy. I want to have the ability to, to make these decisions uh, for my patients to advocate for them. I guess... That autonomy, I, I view it as something that also allows me to grow in that position. I have been asked a lot, like, why not nursing? And and I feel like there's only a certain point that you can go in that. And by becoming a physician, I think there are a lot more opportunities where I can use this knowledge that I have um, for improving conditions for people like myself who come from backgrounds like myself. And I still honestly... If any of you exist out there, I would love to know. But I have never seen a female physician who is a former foster youth. So mm. I, I don't see anybody who serves as a role model for people like myself who want to who want to become a physician and have experienced, you know, the things that I have. You also, from multiple perspectives now, between your experience and also your experience 
advocating for your sister and seeing what she's gone through, you have such a deep bench of knowledge about systems. And I would imagine a lot of people who go into the medical field don't have that. They don't think about it. They're thinking about wanting to help others, wanting to save lives, impact lives, change lives, do good. They're want, they're thinking about maybe the money, becoming a plastic surgeon or something, but they're not necessarily thinking about the entire twisted nut that is our medical system in this country and our child care system in this country, our, our child protective care in this country. And I would imagine that is going to be an enormous advantage to you. Yeah, I think that physicians, I think they want to do good. I think there is a disconnect, though, between what what does happen in these systems, like these state systems and whatnot, through no fault of their own or anything like that. I think there's some challenges with communication and transparency. And I, I, I guess from what I've learned and whatnot, <laughs> Uh, privacy, you know, like they, these state agencies want to protect the privacy of the the people that they serve, but at the same time, it comes at the cost of of not being able to provide, uh, like this holistic picture for physicians. And I, I think there's a lot of challenges that happen in the background that they're just not familiar with. And again, through no fault of their own. I think that it's a lot to also try to wrap your head around, especially if you've not been in the system or haven't had experience with the system. You you can see some of some of those challenges, but having experienced it, I, I think gives a, a whole different, unique perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what is so valuable and what I want to add to that role. I want to know what you feel like you need number one, and also what you feel like you need to do to get from where you are, which is you've graduated college now, which is, it's such a huge achievement for many people. And in the face of all of the seemingly insurmountable obstacles that you have faced since you came onto the earth, it's just an even more incredible achievement. But how do you get from where you are now to where you want to be? So just going back to what I said about there not being a role model, it's hard because I really don't. I'm kind of laying the path down as I'm going it because there isn't one that has been laid before me. Um, And so there are a lot of challenges that I and mistakes that I've made along the way. And I'm, I'm not sure if you know this, too. I think thank you also for saying about college, um, because the number of emancipated youth who graduate from college is it's it's actually in the single digits, so it's a very small amount. Um, and I I'm really grateful for being able to accomplish that. Again, though it took longer, I think there were many things that I learned throughout that process. Where I'm at now, I I think there are some challenges. Obviously, with my academic history, I think some of the challenges that I am experiencing are related to things that I can't necessarily change. And what I mean by that, um, 
because I was enrolled intermittently in college. That's not actually something typical, I guess. Not, I guess. It's, it's not something mm-hmm. that's typical. And that is not viewed positively. At the same time, though I had this like this desire and motivation to become a, a physician, to, to become more educated, I had these aspirations. I was simultaneously battling these challenges in which were affecting my performance in school. So I have some areas in my ac- academic history that are weaknesses or viewed as weaknesses, and I, I can't change those. I think the challenge therein lies in uh, getting people to understand how, though not typical, th- that those situations have provided me with additional insight that would be useful towards the role of a physician. I think another another challenge is that I've I've attended community college. I've received some feedback from colleges that um, it's also something that is viewed negatively. So those are some of the things that I, I can't change. And I actually applied last year in, in the last medical school cycle, and I was not accepted. I, I, didn't, I took the MCAT, and I didn't receive a score that I am proud of. Um, I definitely think that I could have done better. And I took this exam, which is the medical college admissions test, and I didn't perform very well. And it's kind of like a one and done <laughs> You do have a, another opportunity, but with timing, um, there wasn't there wasn't an opportunity where I, w- I would be able to retest before that. But I, I was very eager to apply because you know I was I was very excited that I had reached this point. And mm. um, so I applied despite the fact, and I was not accepted. Of course she didn't get in. Even the American Medical Association acknowledges that medical school admissions, the education of clinicians during medical school, and patient care itself are all inherently inequitable. In an AMA Journal of Ethics article, the authors state, meritocracy in its current form excludes the skill sets of many. This is exactly what Juliana describes. Med schools prize grades and standardized test results, which have a heavy bias in favor of students with social power. Translation, higher socioeconomic status, kids who have had every advantage. In fact, according to Academic Medicine, a journal of the Association of American Medical Colleges, more than 48% of medical students come from the top income quintile, while less than 6% come from the bottom. Where do you think Juliana falls on that spectrum? Juliana told me she's going to retake the MCAT and apply to medical school again. And I ask her how she's feeling about her prospects. I think, though, I will still have challenges in having others see value in me. One of the things that I had done, and maybe it was not the right thing to do, but because I knew that there were going to be challenges, 
I had reached out to each school I was applying to, just trying to plead my case for why I believed they should give me a chance. Ultimately, that didn't end up working. But I, I think there is a challenge in that, in, in trying to have these schools to not see me as a risk. Because I, I do know that disruptions in enrollment do show like a, a risky pattern of behavior. But when you take into consideration the, the barriers and, and challenges that I have overcome, I, I'm just hopeful that somebody will give me a chance. That's, I guess that's really what I need right now. For somebody really to see that I am more than what school records or a piece of paper shows me to be. I'm more than, than these mistakes, these disruptions, and, and that I have something, I have really valuable insight that I can offer as a physician. Here's the good news. The authors of that AMA article support a more holistic admissions process and offer that one way to motivate equity in admissions is to frame structural competency as a source of merit in a candidate. Simply put, they suggest med schools start to value an applicant's ability to understand how social, cultural, and political structures confer advantage to some and disadvantage to others. Beyond that, these med schools need to weigh an applicant's facility with collaboration, conscientious approaches to problem solving, and grit. As much, if not more, than the MCAT scores. Lastly, it is time for schools to see an applicant's lived experience, skills in advocacy, service, and mentorship as strengths, not weaknesses. I hope somebody who listens to this, I hope somebody who's out there listening to this hears this whole interview and realizes the absolute gift, incredible intelligence and wisdom and passion that you would bring to this pursuit. And I hope somebody hears it and chooses to mentor you, figures out a way to help you, figures out a way to fund you, figures out a way to knock on every door that they have access to and, and helps you get in because you so grossly deserve to be aided and abetted in this endeavor. Thank you. I hope someone does too. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just talk a little bit about your your advocacy mm-hmm. and what you want to use your voice for on this episode for the next few minutes to talk about that domain in your life and the work that you're doing and and what it means to you. Yeah, so I guess um, for the longest time, you know, when I was previously talking about like the stigma that's attached to being in foster care or being a foster child, and especially the one that's attached to those who like emancipate from the system, I, I had not spent time around anybody like me. And actually, I, I thought that my situation was unique and I thought that I had fallen through the gaps and that I, I knew I knew others were experiencing challenges and they weren't necessarily having great experiences with the foster care system. But I naively thought that this experience of me transitioning out of care, or actually I don't even want to call it a transition because there wasn't a transition, this abrupt departure from care. In, in which I was cut off from support and had to learn to navigate adulthood on my own. 
I, I had no idea that this was actually something like really common with others who were emancipating from the system. Mm-hmm. So because of the shame that I, I had felt with being from the foster care system and just my situation in, in general, because I was meant to feel like, you know, these challenges that I had gone through were brought on by myself or whatever, you know, like I had caused this to happen to myself. So there there weren't any support groups or anything like that. It was an identity that I did not embrace. It was an identity that I hid from others. Although there were instances, of course, where it was really challenging, especially around the holidays when people are going with their families and talking about what they're doing with their families. That was a little bit more of a challenge to hide from people. But just in general, I just didn't talk about it. So after it was actually after the incident with my sister, again, like I said, it was a huge turning point for me in more ways than one. I can only imagine what it would have been like to not have somebody like myself there advocating for her and trying to speak up for her when she was experiencing you know, the things that she she was while she was hospitalized and just how her care was managed and whatnot. So after she became more stable, I became involved with a community organization in Ohio that was interested in my insight for a project that they were going to do that would serve essentially foster youth who were emancipating in the area. And through them, I was introduced to the foster care community. Um, <laughs> and that was just a huge, I don't even know how to describe it. It was, it was also a life-changing event for me because suddenly I was with these other people. I, for a long time, I struggled because I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. I felt so different from everyone else. And I, I didn't feel like people understood me or why I, why my behavior might have manifested in the ways that it did. But here in this community of foster alumna, or foster alumni, I should say, I, I really felt accepted. And through them, I really began to embrace this identity and not to hide it. And while in this community, I also you know, I, I was watching other foster alumni use their voices as like this tool for creating change. And I, I hadn't really ever thought about it on that level. Like, I know I was advocating for my sister, but this was like on a, a personal, more individual level. I never thought or I, I never saw how I could use my personal story to create change, like big change. And Really, I, I kind of jumped in very quickly <laughs> so that I was introduced to the foster care community in 2018. So it honestly hasn't even been that long. But very quickly, I, I started to attend these meetings with state officials, uh, sharing my story. And it was, it was a little bit sloppy at first. <laughs> I didn't really know what I was doing. I've learned a lot since then and how to tailor that but seeing how I could use my voice to to impact, to create this change was just really empowering for me. And I, I think it, it was central 
to helping even heal my trauma too. Because I, I was sitting here and again, you know, I said, what am I doing wrong? Why can't I move forward? What can I do? And, and about having these choices. And, and I was able to literally take that and then put it into action. So mm-hmm. sitting here and, and saying like, oh, well, you know, this stuff happened to me. I can't do anything about that. What I can do, though, is I, I can take my story. I, I get to decide what it means to me and what I'm going to do with it. And so that's exactly what I did. <laughs> I, I decided that I wanted to use it to change the experience for others who are emancipating from care because the issues that I faced are still happening. And by sharing my story, I, I feel that it can help others to feel comfortable in sharing their story. And the more that we share, the more that we raise awareness I think that others who may not have experience with the system or others who don't understand these challenges that we face can come to an understanding and can sit there and see why this change is needed and why, you know, maybe leaving care without a transition <laughs> abruptly like that is not a not a good thing, how that leads to our outcomes, our future outcomes, and, and how helping to provide this support for us can help us also become better contributing partners to the community. If you tomorrow could go in to the legislature and change one thing or adopt some new thing, what would your first agenda point be? Like what would be the number one? It's actually something that I've been advocating for since the beginning of when my advocacy began. And that is for the establishment of a youth ombudsman. I actually recently wrote a community sign-on letter uh, that is addressed to the Ohio Senate. Um, and from that, a double-digit coalition has been created, has been established of support for this youth ombudsman office. And essentially what a youth ombudsman is, it would be an alternative mechanism where youth who are experiencing abuse or neglect can report their concerns if the current mechanism is failing them. So in my situation, why it's so personal to me is because, like I had said, I I reached out, others had reached out on my behalf, and there were there was no intervention. And I had nobody call the day that I left care. But I ultimately ended up calling child services because there there was just nobody. Had there been this dedicated person or office to call, I, I think my my situation, I, I wouldn't have had to endure this prolonged abuse and neglect for such a long period of time. So there's a lot of challenges. One of the biggest ones right now is 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 trying to have state officials understand why it would need to be separate from serving, you know, foster parents or biological parents or anybody else, really. There are a lot of platforms where adults can voice their concerns, but there are no dedicated platforms for where youth can voice their concerns. There's also a conflict of interest uh, 
as in if this ombudsman office were to serve both youth and their caregiver, how do you how do you remain impartial? How do you make sure that you're still serving the best interest of the child? Because we've seen we've seen that fail. I mean that that's how child protective services is structured right now and it's it's not working. This issue is even more pressing considering the data that has even come out while we've been all living through COVID um, and also for the data that we don't even have, that for the data that we can't even collect. I, I know that there's increased reports of children having to come to the ER for really severe abuse. And, and so it, it begs to question what else is going on that we're missing because these children aren't being seen by the people who typically would report it in the first place. So, you know, their teachers and whatnot. So I would love to see a youth ombudsman office established. Is there anywhere people can go to get more information about that? If, especially if, like me, I don't live in the state of Ohio, but to support your efforts. The organization that I serve as a governmental liaison for is called Foster Action Ohio. There's two organizations that are part of that. One is called the Ohio Youth Advisory Board, and then there's Foster Action Ohio. And these are the statewide voices of foster youth and alumni. So the Ohio YAB is our younger population. And once you become too old to be a part of that, you can join the older alumna like myself in um, Action Ohio. So I believe that that website is fosteractionohio.org. Sure, we'll put it in the show yeah. notes. And from there, you can see our advocacy efforts. And somewhere within that website, there, it will link to this uh, sign-on letter, or you can contact somebody through there if you're interested in helping us move this along. Great. What's something that makes you happy? My dogs. (laughs) (laughs) How many do you have? I have two. (laughs) Yeah, I have two dogs. They're both rescues. I just love to watch uh, all of their strange behavior. (laughs) I'm with you. I have one rescue and I love her. Um, I have a little rapid fire questionnaire for you so we'll try we'll try to just go through them really quickly don't think too hard just first thing that comes off the top of your head oh gosh the first one is a fill in the blank change requires blank change requires open-mindedness if you could go back in time and change one thing and only one thing about your past what would it be you know, I think if you would have asked me this, I know you said rapid fire, but <laughs> I okay. am not going to do that because this is a really <laughs> complex answer. If you would have asked me that um, in the past, I, I think that I would have told you a lot of things. I could have brought up a lot of things. But as I've gotten older, I've realized that I wouldn't change anything. I, I don't know if I would be the person that I have become if I hadn't experienced all those things. And I, I like the person that I am. I like the the values and the morals and the passion that I have, the things that I stand for. Um, so I, I wouldn't change anything. That answer makes me so happy. 
It really does. Thank you. Not that my happiness <laughs> is important in this questionnaire. What is one thing, big or small, you would like to see change in the world? I would really like to see, I guess, kindness and, and empathy. I, I think there's just this mentality of people not wanting to help one another anymore. And I, I think we're losing this like sense of community and I would love to see, I would love to see that be strengthened. What is one thing, big or small, you hope never changes? Oh, I hope my dogs never die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one thing, big or small, that never changes. Um, I don't, I don't know. It's okay. What is one small or superficial thing, and you can be really superficial if you want, that you would change about yourself? I don't know. I don't think, again, I think this is kind of like that previous question. If you would have asked me in the past, I, I think I probably would have been quick to fire off several things. But um, as I've become older, I think that I've just kind of embraced like things that I didn't used to like about myself before. One of those is I I have a few scars on my face from from my father and I was very self-conscious about that and I would have given anything in the past to sit there and, and have those removed. I don't know how you remove a scar, but I thought I was willing to do whatever to have that removed and um, I would do whatever I could to also hide it. So I I would never even wear my hair like this before. It would just be covering. Mm. I have one in particular, like right right here. Um, I'm sure you can see other ones as well. But as I've gotten older, I think that I, I just see them differently and it mm-hmm. isn't something to be shameful about anymore. I think it's just, I guess, a testament to, to my will to survive and thrive. It's really about what I've been through and, and, and moving forward. You, you definitely win. There's no winner <laughs> to these rapid fire questions, but, but so far you win. Don't tell any of the other guests. Um, how often do you change your toothbrush? So I actually have a couple toothbrushes in my rotation, and I know that sounds uh-huh. weird, um, but it's because I have also recently become a caregiver for my grandparents, and I'm living half my time here in Columbus, Ohio, and half um, back up north where they're from. So I have a couple different toothbrushes, and... Uh, Outside of that, though, I do change it pretty often um, just because I don't know, it grosses me out. Okay. Are you primarily a change maker, a change seeker, or a change resistor? I would say, I don't know, can I be a combination? Um, sure. I feel that I am a change maker, but to be a change maker, you also have to be a change seeker. I don't know if I could be one without the other. I would I would say mm-hmm. that it's it's kind of a combination of the two. 
What does your next big change look like? And feel free to be imaginative, fantastical, or aspirational in your answer. Um, my next big change, I think, would be getting accepted to medical school and fulfilling that aspiration to become a physician. What would you say, if you only had a few words to give them, what would you say to someone who's looking to create lasting change? I would say, I would say, don't be discouraged. I think if there's anything that all these challenges throughout my life have have shown me, you know, I, I think I could have easily given up at any point, um, just through the sheer number of challenges that I've had. But I have a stubbornness and Mm -hmm. a no or an outcome that doesn't go as I envisioned it doesn't mean that it's permanent. I, I think that situations can change and you can be a part of that change. So don't be discouraged if you don't see results right away. That's great. You are truly, truly inspiring. You're truly beautiful and you're truly generous with your story and your spirit. And I hope all good things for you as you keep following through on your stubborn streak and going on and on in life. Thank you for talking with me today. Thank you for having me and and thank you really for giving me a platform to share my story. It's been almost two months since my interview with Juliana, but as we were completing the editing on this episode, I got an email update from her that I'd like to share with you. She tells me, The legislation for the youth ombudsman will be amended to reflect the revisions requested by foster youth and alumni. The amended bill will be brought before the Ohio Senate for a vote in early 2022, where it's expected to pass. She goes on to write, Seeing these efforts come to fruition is bittersweet, not just because I've invested three years into this initiative, but also because the youth ombudsman is actually where my advocacy journey first began. And that past version of myself could never have imagined what she was capable of or who she would become. Shift Bloom is a co-production of TCOM Studios and Actually Quite Nice, engineered by Tim Fall, and hosted by me, Kristen Sorelli. Episodes are available wherever you download your podcasts and are made possible by listeners just like you. Please consider supporting our work by visiting us at patreon.com forward slash shift shift bloom. Shift Shift Bloom is made possible in part by the Prade Foundation, a nonprofit organization committed to improving the well-being of all through the use of personalized, timely interventions and provider of online training in the TCOM tools. TCOM is Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management, a comprehensive framework for improving the effectiveness of helping systems through person-centered care. Online at pradefoundation.org and at 
tcomconversations.org and by the Center for Innovation and Population Health at the University of Kentucky, online at iph.uky.edu.